0: Follow the news closely that China, a nation constitutes 1.4 billion people, and today is generating much greater noises. And given the fact today, under the current leader Xi Jinping, not only we've seen this political ambitions are getting much bigger and bigger, but meanwhile, this competition, particularly from this economic standpoint, with America, and again, is getting wider attention. And given the fact that today, for Xi Jinping, it's not just about these political noises, but meanwhile, for this economic agenda, and China is hitting this what we called unstoppable path. But meanwhile, when we look at the number lately, some people start to question this Chinese economy. And some believe this post-pandemic period, China today is hitting the brick walls, and we've seen this youth unemployment rate is skyrocketing. And also, we've seen that some more international investors starting to walk away from China, not just because of the political reasons, but more about this economic uncertainty. Maybe we're too negative today. But meanwhile, according to some experts, that China today is not only again looking at this economic projection carefully, but also is isn't all about this bad news. As a matter of fact, China, it's actually growing in this much greater and healthier way. Well, is this really the case? And how much do we really understand and this economic agenda under Xi Jinping? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, and who is Bob Davis. Bob Davis it's a reporter who covered US-China economic relations for decades for the Wall Street Journal, And he's the co-author of Superpower Showdown: How the Battle Between Trump and Xi Threatens a New Cold War. Well, Bob, and welcome back to The Missing Piece.
1: Thank you very much. It's nice to be here.
0: Well, Bob, again, initially when I discovered you, because this amazing article that you wrote is called Maybe China's Economy Isn't So Doomed. Now, let's get the question started. Lately, if we follow the media and the news closely that for the Chinese economy isn't so promising at this moment. Again, some believe that we're looking at this, uh, this youth unemployment rate and also the slowness in Chinese economy in terms of international investment. But in your article that you pinpointed that as Beijing struggles with a downturn, some experts, it's actually making a brighter case is there anything that we're misreading today about Chinese economy, or is Chinese economy actually more promising than we understand? What do you think?
1: Well, um, thanks again. I mean, the reason I wrote the article is that there is such a uh, unbroken, a negative drumbeat when it comes to the Chinese economy. Um, one story after another story, one economist after the other economist, saying that— um, and Not just that China's slowing, but slowing in a in a way that will essentially cripple it, uh, kind of on a China on a uh, Japanese model. Mm-hmm. And you know, China has lots and lots and lots of um, structural problems. You mentioned youth unemployment. There's the aging population. There's the shrinking working population. There's giant debt problems. There's over reliance on housing um God what else you know the the residue of the one child policy can go on and on and on and on um the question is is this the moment mm. that a lot of people have been waiting for honestly is this the moment where all those um structural problems finally hit and China essentially stops mm. uh you know or slows you know absolutely dramatically and the, the honest answer is we don't know but it's yeah. not it's clearly not an open-and-shut answer that, yes, this is the moment where everything hits the fan. <clears throat> um, you know, the people have been um, predicting this for, God, for 20 years or so, and it hasn't happened yet, and China has plenty of strengths. Uh, I think, also, uh, China is such a difficult place to read. Mm. You know, the information is held uh, secret, uh, the data a lot of people don't trust. Uh, It's even more so. More of an a block. It's more of a black box now since they threw out so many Western journalists. So it's tough to tell. And also, I think honestly, when it comes to many people in the West, there's a lot of wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who would like China's economy to grow to slow rather. So it's less of a political uh, challenger to the U.S. and the rest of the West. So I think there's that plays into it also. So there is an optimistic case to be made. And that's
0: what I was trying to do. Well, again, Bob, you covered the U.S.-China economic relations for decades. But again, let's talk about this political influence or this political engagement along with the economic uh, um, issue. Again, going back to the article, I mean, we understand that under the current leader, Xi Jinping, you mentioned that he forced the closure of the private touring sector. And also, again, he further centralized the state sector. I mean, Xi Jinping is not Deng Xiaoping. I mean, I think today, when we look at this economic projection or looking at the uh, looking at this economic a uh, situation, too often we tend to study or go back to the books where Deng Xiaoping had this grant idea, you know, opened up doors and in invited investors, and and again we, I mean, he welcomed it and embraced for international friends, but today Xi Jinping seemed to is doing the opposite of what Deng Xiaoping had in mind or what how Deng Xiaoping started. Now, Bob the question to you is how much do you think Xi Jinping's political ambition really creating impact on this Chinese economic agenda? So in other words, how much do you think he's more driven by his political purposes rather than fixing or rather than focusing on Chinese economy today what what are your thoughts
1: well it depends what you mean by political purposes his his overall purpose is to um, grow the power of China mm. right I mean to make China more powerful give it a, a more significant place in the world political and economic system that in, that depends enormously on the economy so I wouldn't think that it would be fair to say that he doesn't care about the economy, because he does. The Mm. question is, does his ideology, does his view that the state is the proper, um, what would you call, guiding uh, force for the rest of the economy, does that play out? Or another way to think about it is, you know, Deng Xiaoping may have thought that also, you know, in his heart of hearts. I mean, all of them are... Are are Marxist, right? I mean, they all believe in you know the sort of Marxian, uh way of development, which is you know a big role for the state. Um, but Deng clearly had a pragmatic view as well, you know, and understood that China was way behind the West. Understood that they needed China needed Western technology, needed Western advice, needed Western capital, on and on and on. You know, Deng Xiaoping, I mean uh, Xi Jinping. I think if we divide it into political and economic on the political or ideological and economic on the political ideology i don't see any particular change i mean i think he is as you describe you know i mean a surprisingly hardline marxist surprise mm. you know surprisingly given you know his family history of being um persecuted during the cultural revolution but that's that's what we found ha- that he is uh the question is when it comes to the economy, is uh, does that ideology of the state as the leadership force, um, uh, the concern that um, capitalists like uh, Jack Ma and others of that sort um, pose, in theory anyway, or potentially, I suppose you would say, an, a political challenge, as happened in the Soviet Union, right? Or happened in as happened in Russia, the oligarchs and so on. So is he worried, does he look at Jack Ma and company and see them as potential oligarchs, uh, you know, in, as Russia is today? Um, you know, the answer is probably, but I think he also has begun, or the question is, has he also begun to see that uh he's frightened off too many he's, he's frightened too many people mm-hmm. you know as you point out foreign investment in china is sinking the talk among uh companies big western companies in china is not necessarily leaving china but not expanding in china mm-hmm. looking for a way to diversify uh, there's a you know a hundred different ways of Dubai of um describing diversification you can call it de-risking you can call it decoupling but in any event it's you know Uh, China, for the um, uh, Western investor, China isn't the place that that they thought it was, you know, five, ten years ago. Um, So can they course correct? That's the question. There is evidence that they're trying to, you know, that they have sent signals out that um, the uh, purge uh, of, you know, big companies is over. Um, and that they recognize their debt problems. They recognize the problems that they have in invest in interesting Western capital. But there are contrary signals as well, right? I mean, he seems to be starting to crack down on Foxconn, mm. which is a way to, fa- you know crack down on Apple or to at least make the West realize that um, you know, one of the most significant Western companies, has is enormously vulnerable in China. Mm. Um, so you know it's an open question, but it's a question. It's not an obvious answer, which I think is too many people have jumped to the conclusion that he's a hardline Marxist. he can't you know his ideology his ideology blinds him to everything else. I don't think that's you know an obvious answer. And again, the article was meant to, say there ought to be a debate on this. Don't be so sure that you know what's happening in China. No one ever really particularly knows what's happening in China and keep open to the idea that China may squeak through. I mean the big real genuine debate everybody knows China is slowing, right? It's not going to grow at 10%. No big economy can grow, you know, you know, endlessly at 10%. It's just impossible. <clears throat> so I mean, the, um, the Chinese Premier has set the goal of around 5% growth, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that. so that is still significantly less than it had been. The question really is, does it go down to 2%, 3%? Mm-hmm. This kind of, you know, growth rates that America and other Western countries have. And does it do it in a kind of slow glide path? You know, in X number of years, you get down to 2 or 3%. Um, or does it happen now? Immediately. Mm. So in the U.S., for instance, 3% growth would be considered great. Mm. Um, in China, if they're planning for 5 5.5% growth, and you only manage half of that, you got a big problem, right? Mm. I mean, that means you're not employing all the people you think you're employing. It means you've overproduced. You have too many loans out there that aren't going to be paid off. So you're a big problem. So that's the real question. It's the, the rate of deceleration of the Chinese economy.
0: Bob, I want to talk about one of the significant projects under Xi Jinping, which is Belt and Road Initiative. And we know that for the year of 2023, this project, it's even more significant, again, given the fact that more international diplomats and officials and delegates recently participated this Belt and Road Forum. And again, under this uh, umbrella that Xi Jinping made crystal clear, that he was going for two clear messages. And the first one was looking for international unification. And one thing that he mentioned clearly that China has never been interested in dominating the world. And again, competition is allowed, but by calling China to dominate the world, and that's not fair. So again, Xi Jinping insinuated this message clearly. And the second thing that Xi Jinping, he also made crystal clear is he believed international partnership So in other words, China is not the only country who can shoulder the much greater responsibilities. So China needs help. But now on the counter argument side, some people say that this Belt and Road Initiative started to see more cracks and turn into what we called debt trap. So, Bob, the next question to you is how much do you think that we can actually understand the influence of belt and road initiative today and also by seeing this uncertainty in chinese economy are we misreading this project or do you think it's time for us to recalculate or to reevaluate this project from the international level
1: i think the belt and road was his you know quite uh brilliant honestly um you know strategy uh to um, well, for a couple of, couple of things, one, to exert Chinese power, uh, mm. much more broadly around the world, also, uh, to deal with the Chinese overproduction, mm. right? I mean, generally speaking, they don't hire local companies, mm. they bring in Chinese companies, Chinese workers, you know, and, and, uh, it's a way to deal with the overcapacity, which has been a problem nagging at China. Um, also a friendly face to China, this is loans for infrastructure where the world bank had gotten kind of away from infrastructure lending into a lot of, um, kind of socially useful, um, lending that honestly, a lot of the poorer countries didn't really want that what they wanted were bro- roads and bridges and power plants mm. and things of that sort. And China is very good at, at building those things. I think what they, what has happened, and also it seemed a way even to peel away some European countries, mm. um, but what's happened is that there's been any number of examples of China making loans, countries not being able to pay the loans. They are on the hook to China. Sri Lanka is the clearest example where China wound up with a port, you know, control of a port. And so concern on the part of borrowers that they're gonna wind up, um, you know, almost a vassal state to uh, China. I'm not sure, honestly, that that was the goal of of the Chinese. You know, the port that they wound up in Sri Lanka really isn't where exactly you'd want a port. Mm. Um, so they might wind up with a lot of assets they really don't honestly want. Um, and also, China's debt problems have been growing. I think you see some scaling back on their ambitions. And on the European side, you definitely have seen scaling back. You know, the Italians are trying to figure out a way to pull out a Belt and Road without entirely insulting the Chinese um, so I think what you have now is a way for China to try to increase its um, influence uh, in what's called the global South. You know, the countries, the non-european countries, mm. non uh, North American countries still is a very uh, interesting uh, and um, potentially uh, quite smart, you know strategy to build China into the leader of the so-called global south that uh, what used to be called the non-aligned movement what used to be called the third world it always has a different name but basically mm-hmm. what we're talking about are poorer you know are poorer countries that have a hard time getting the uh, loans uh, that they need to build up their countries
0: mm-hmm. Bob, I want to move on to the technology sector. Again, I want to go back to the article. There's something you wrote and then um, I want to dive into. I want to get your uh, further explanation. And you wrote, in the 1980s, when China was first experimenting with market reform, its economy was 11%, the size of the US. Now, it's 71% at large, the IMF estimates, that despite facing Asian financial crisis in 1997 and 1998 and a global one in 2008 and 2009, hundreds of millions of Chinese are no longer poor and the country has become a technology leader. Now, I understand that today China, it's very hungry for this technological reform and also uh, the competition between US and China, just from this technological perspective, it's going head to head with each other. But again, Bob, to call that China today, or the country, has become a technology leader, what does that mean? And what kind of message are we supposed to understand uh, to the international level that China today it's a technology leader? What are you trying to say, by the way?
1: Well, I mean, it's just the truth. I mean, you know, they uh, are the number two, um, they spend the second largest amount of money on research and development of any mm. country in the world. They have you know um leadership role probably and uh, well certainly in a lot of uh, clean energy technologies you know it's not just um you know frankly cheap solar pa- you know panels mm. or cheap wind power i mean they're also developing leading edge technologies in those very important technologies battery electric batteries are another one um you know when it comes to artificial intelligence i don't know if think anybody really knows who's the leader Probably there are, you know, leadership, you know, in the various segments of it. There's probably, you know, different leaders, uh, but they are a significant player. I mean, I think from the U.S., I think I know from the U.S. perspective and increasingly from the European perspective, they're concerned about that, right? I mean, the technology is the way forward on, on economy and also on the military. So, I mean, from the U.S. perspective, what they try to do is limit the leading-edge technology that goes into China and, frankly, I believe, hobble the ability of China to catch up in that area. Now, catch up doesn't mean what it used to mean. Catch up, I mean, China was so far behind, such a poor country. Mm -hmm. A catch up might mean, um, gosh, when it comes to semiconductors, you know, making the most elemental semiconductors, having any semiconductor capacity at all. Now it means catch up, meaning at the very, very edge, leading edge, you know, catching up and and surpassing. Uh, you know, the others, there's a lot of very smart Chinese people and, you know, there's a lot of uh, money that goes into it. I mean, one of the interesting questions really is, I mean, I think the U.S. has always believed, and I think most Americans as divided as this country is, and it is sadly really very divided, I think most Americans, if you ask them, will say that they believe that individual freedom is absolutely essential to economic growth and everything else that's good. Now, different Americans will define individual freedom very differently. I mean, it's one of the huge um, divisions within this country, but there is a belief in in just the absolute essentiality of individual freedom. Well, in China you don't have that, right? I mean, you might have the ability to uh, make money in markets and so on, but is the ability, you know, to think what you want to think, do what you want to do, say what you want to say, essential to economic growth. I mean, Americans always thought that was the case. China has always been the counterexample Mm. of that. Maybe it's not. Maybe Mm. there's another way of, you know, becoming a global, the global technology leader. I mean, it is one of the great uh, unanswered questions and one of the great challenges of the century.
0: Bob, two more questions before letting you go. Now, let's talk about another piece of reality. Uh, Again, briefly, you mentioned that today, U.S. is clearly standing at the crossroads and we will look at this political perspective. And we know that from the Democratic side and also from the Republican side, even from the third party perspective, that everyone is eyeing for the 2024 presidential election. You know, again, uh, we've seen debates and we've heard uh, candidates, you know, throughout the countries in campaign, and of course that China, one way or another, eventually will come into the picture. You know, again, this is something that this candidate or the qualified candidates, they have to deal with, and they have to offer this something more tangible to the American citizens. Now, Bob, the next question to you is, how much do you think that matters today when the candidates or the potential candidates truly understand the challenges between U.S. and China? I mean, again, we've seen a lot more uh, higher officials from the U.S. side, you know, uh, pay the visit to China and also met up with Xi Jinping. You know, we've seen the media reports. But again, when it really comes to tangible solution, practical friendship, how much do you think that it's requirement? For the person to understand the challenges and the friendship, and most importantly, how to move on between the two countries for the bigger picture, how significant is that at this moment?
1: Well, in a policy way, it's enormously significant, right? <clears throat> I mean, the U.S. Uh, Biden and his advisors, and I think Trump and his advisors too, you know, have said that um, China is the greatest challenge to the United States in the mm. century. However, there's a big however there. That may be the case, but what do we have now? So China's, you know, the biggest long-range challenge. We have, you know, an incredibly brutal uh, war in the uh, Middle East, Israel Mm. and Hamas. We have an incredibly brutal war in Ukraine, Russia and Ukraine. That's what's taking people's attention, right? So China is, you know, down the list um, of concerns when it comes, when America's concerns. I think it's probably part of the reason that things are not quite as bad as they were between the U.S. and China, say, you know, four or five months ago, probably. Um, One of the surprises so far in the Republican primary is how little a role China has played. Mm. You know, I saw an ad about, gosh, I think it was DeSantis against Nikki Haley, the former ambassador. I think it was uh, from him. Anyway, accusing her of you know, cozying up to China, because as governor of South Carolina, and as every governor in the United States, you know, they sought uh, foreign investment, including from China. So now that's being thrown, you know, up in her face. <clears throat> Who knows? You know, I don't think that matters as much as, as people would say. Um, I mean, if the election comes down to Biden versus Trump, which probably it will, um you know, China will probably play a role, um but they you know, largely, frankly, largely agree on China as the um longest uh, the biggest long term challenge. They'll have different proposals. Trump's proposals, God knows what he'll propose, but I mean, you know, in terms of what he proposes and what he might actually do, it mm. could be uh, a large gap. I think China also plays particularly for Trump, actually, and for Trump supporters, a, more, a symbolic role, too. When I talk to workers, and this may have changed, but when I talk to workers in factories that have been been impacted by Chinese competition, the first thing out of their mind and out of their mouth is not, oh, you know, something negative about the Chinese. That It's not at all. It's it's the, something negative about their bosses. Their bosses sold us out. Mm. Can you believe it? Sold us out. You know, and... And so it becomes a symbol of uh, elites defined as pretty much anybody but yourself, you know. Uh, the elites um, turning their back on people like me. Um, so it isn't. It's always it's always interesting. If I ask a worker in one of those situations about China, sure they'll say something negative. But only if I ask. Only mm. if I press them. Without me pressing, without me asking, you know, the part about their bosses that comes up. You know, all the time, unbidden.
0: Hmm. Well, you know how uh, generous the boss could be. And also, of course, how sometimes the boss can be very cruel. But anyway, I want to wrap up our conversation, Bob. want to go back to um, your book. And again, last time, you know, we had the conversation regarding your book. It's called Superpower Showdown, how the battle between Trump and Xi threatens a new Cold War. Again, as we mentioned before, we don't know who'll be the next president for America, but we know that Xi Jinping is not going anywhere. So how much do you think that by seeing the next president for the U.S. and also for this brand new economic political strategy under Xi Jinping, that it's possible that we could avoid a new cold war or is it still uh too early to tell that for us to understand uh, a new cold war it's always on our mind or it's always a topic for us to discuss your final thoughts
1: no it's always a topic i mean i think we're over the edge to you know being involved in in a new cold war that's very different than the last one um but i think us and china see each other as adversaries not just competitors mm. you know one thing i just throw into that biden china biden um biden trump xi jinping triumvirate mm. the heart attack question Li chong showed us like just the other day you know things can get upended very quickly you're dealing with three very old men mm. right three of them you know no no one's health is guaranteed so one should factor that in as well that there's always You know a health component to all of this and that might shake up things in ways that we never thought about
0: mm. Well, you're right Bob again right now when we'll look at China we look at us and look at any countries around the world I guess number one is the word uncertainty and number two is ideal partnership and again Uh, When we look at the war in Israel and the war in Ukraine, and surely we need more international partners uh, instead of having these international foes or international enemies. Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Bob Davis. Again, Bob Davis, it's a reporter who covered U.S.-China economic relations for decades for The Wall Street Journal. And I strongly encourage everyone go online and check out his new book. It's called Superpower Shutdown. How the Battle Between Trump and Xi Threatens a New Cold War. Well, Bob, thank you so much for your time. It's always been a pleasure, and we really appreciate your insights. We'd love to have you back on the show as we continue to pay attention to this economic relationship between China and the U.S. So thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here.